Anybody recognize the building? I mean, don't, you're going to find out in about a second. So, you've been to Europe? Anybody? How many people have been to Europe? Yeah. Oh, good, lots. Some of you are from there, right? So, a few of you. Yeah. Every time I've been to Europe, I've been struck by the sense of history that you feel there. I'm from Florida. History is when a building's been around since 1974. Wow, that's an, that's an old building, yeah. But in Europe, everywhere, just everywhere you go, you just feel this, this sense of history. And one of the coolest things that Beth and I got to see when we were over there this summer, when we were in England toward the end of our trip, was this building. This is the Temple Church. It's located in London. We were just awestruck to be at this church. Now, I know you're looking at it and you're going, okay, yeah, it's an old building. Got it. Understand. But this church was consecrated in the year 1185. 850 years ago, this church was consecrated. 850 years. That's how long that's been standing. And this temple church was the English headquarters for the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar also known as just the Templars, was a Catholic military order founded in 1119 AD and it was headquartered officially on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about the Templars because they're kind of interesting. The Templars originally consisted of a group of knights who protected Christian pilgrims who were traveling to the Holy Land and through the Holy Land. They were traveling to Israel. And they were protecting them against pirates and against brigands and against bandits. People who were trying to basically mug them and take all their stuff, whatever they were bringing to the Holy Land. Now, in 1129 AD, the Templars took monastic vows. So they took vows as monks. They took vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. And they pledged themselves ready to die for their Christian faith. Now, over time, they kind of developed a bit and became what they call a chivalric order of warrior monks, and they're most famous for fighting in the Crusades. Now, the Crusades, which you've heard of, maybe you've never heard the definition of, the Crusades were a series of religious wars that were sanctioned by the church in Rome, sanctioned by the Pope, and they began with the campaigns in the Eastern Mediterranean that were aimed at rescuing the Holy Land from Muslim rule. And then they continued for other purposes. And then those purposes, basically, the Crusades continued for the purpose of suppressing paganism and suppressing anti-Christian heresy. Now, it's interesting also, and just this is a little aside, you know, in case you're ever playing a trivia game or watching Jeopardy and you need the answer, the word Crusades, in other words, when they started calling these things the Crusades, that didn't actually come around until the mid-1700s, so 600-plus years later. Now, the Templars existed as an operating entity for about 200 years. And during that time, during that 200 years, dozens of crusades were fought. And those crusades provided sort of a focal point for a lot of European history for centuries. So when you looked into the 1100s, the 1200s, that's when the crusades were taking place. So that's what people sort of mark as European history around that time. Now, the Templars became very popular, and they, over time, became 
the favored charity throughout the Christian world. People gave a lot of money to the Templars to keep the Templars going. And as a result, they sort of grew. Their numbers rapidly expanded. The Templar Knights in those traditional, and if you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I can't make that a pastoral recommendation, but uh, you've seen it, you know. But you notice that they have the, the white background and the, the red cross. That's the, the sign of England now, more, more or less, not stylized quite like that. But they were the most skilled fighting unit of all the Crusades. But interestingly, they weren't all warriors. Non-combatant members of the Templars, which by the way ultimately made up about 90% of the Templars were non-combatants, they actually managed a large economic infrastructure throughout all of the Christian world and they developed innovative financial techniques that became an early form of banking. You have to remember we didn't always have banks and so the financial structure that these Templars built became an early form of banking. Now interestingly the Templars ultimately built a network of nearly a thousand commanderies they call them and forts, basically locations where they operated out of all across Europe and across the Holy Land. Eventually they became a major part of the European infrastructure which is why even after they were disbanded in 1312 AD they still have a legend. The legend lives on. We still know who they are and what they're all about. Now many of us are familiar with the Templars because of the stories of the Arturian Knights of the Round Table. Or, of course, the Da Vinci Code book, <clears throat> or the movies, and I'm not recommending those, just so you know. Anyway, there is an interesting story about the Templar Knights. It's told about them, and it's relevant to today's message, which is why I'm talking about all of this. Now, the story, and, and we don't actually know if the story is true or if it's merely what we call an apocryphal legend. It's a legend that's been passed down for so long that it, it might be true, but we just can't trace it back. But the story goes like this. In order to carry out the Crusades, the church had to enlist knights from various kingdoms that were beholden to the papacy, that were loyal to the pope. Now, before a knight could go out and fight on behalf of God, they needed to be baptized, which makes sense, right? And through baptism, what the knights would do is they would sort of seal their agreement to surrender to God and commit themselves as being loyal to the church and also loyal to the Pope. But the knights had a fundamental problem in making that big a commitment. As a knight, even though the Templars agreed to completely, completely thoroughly surrender to God, and place all of their faith and trust in Jesus and in the church and in the Pope, in reality, these were warriors. In reality, the Templars placed their faith and trust in what? In their swords, in their weapons. And they placed their faith and trust in their ability to wield those swords in battle. No knight, no Templar would ever, ever surrender the control of his sword to anyone, including God. And so the story goes, when the knights were baptized before they headed off into a crusade, as they were being immersed beneath the water, it was their practice to hold their sword out of the water. So they were giving themselves to God, but their sword they kept dry, signifying they were mostly committing themselves to God, 
but not completely committing themselves to God. Now, the Templars had absolutely no issue or no problem with symbolically giving their lives to Jesus and the church as long as they could still place their trust for their lives, for their safety, and for their security in those swords. Now, sitting here today looking at that, we kind of go, that feels pretty wrong, doesn't it? It feels wrong. It feels like that is just the height of hypocrisy. Well, this morning, in a message that we are calling No Other, we're going to examine that practice and make sure that we are not inclined to do the very same thing. So, let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for drawing us together this morning. We thank you for giving us this opportunity to come together as your people, to join together as your community, as the body of Christ. We thank you for all the hearts you've brought here, for all the minds you've brought here, for all the people you've brought here, people who love you, people who want to serve you, people who have committed their lives to you. So God, as we continue on this morning, as we study your word, we would ask that you would use the things that you have written for us to change our hearts, to change our minds, and to change our lives as we draw closer to you. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a quick recap, we just finished up our Bystander series. If you missed the Bystander series, I really encourage you, uh, go to our website, go to our YouTube channel, check it out. I think you'll get a lot out of it in the Bystander series. We looked at the seven signs that Jesus left us with so that we could know for certain that Jesus was exactly who Jesus said Jesus was. And as a result, Jesus is worthy of our complete, complete trust in him and our complete devotion of our lives to him, according to the admonition of King Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live. Now, check this out. This is what King Solomon gave us in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. You'll know the verse if you've been studying your Bible a little while. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In some of your ways, acknowledge him. No, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, early on when I first became a follower of Jesus, I memorized these verses. And, and by the way, if you know me, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge proponent of memorizing verses out of context. I think we should learn the Bible. I think we should know the Bible in context. But you have to be careful when you memorize verses out of context because then you sort of begin to apply them in the wrong situations. But early on, I memorized these verses. They're, they're hard to get out of context. And this is pretty straightforward. And when I memorized them, I was able to consult them before every important decision I ever made once I was a follower of Jesus. And then I recalled those verses as I lived out the decisions that I had made in obedience to God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And as a result of that, even when I couldn't see exactly where God was leading me, I was able to have confidence in his providence. And in his, in his will, I was able to be trustful of God as I waited on his timing for every situation that I faced. I have to tell you, of all the verses that I've memorized and I've read over the years, no verse brings me more comfort, no verses bring me more comfort than these. If you want to live a life connected to God's will, I recommend you add these verses to your life as well. 
Well, it's been nearly 30 years since I started following Jesus. And during that time, I've seen God rebuild my heart, really from the ground up. I've seen him reshape my life. And God has taught me to love people whom I thought I could never and would never love. That was a big one for me. God has also taught me to serve people in ways that I never would have fathomed. And God has taught me to take actions that I never, ever would have been brave enough or bold enough to take. But, but when you think about it, that kind of change, those kinds of changes, are what you kind of expect if you give your life to Jesus, right? I mean, it's almost universally expected that a person who claims to have become a follower of Jesus is going to start acting differently, right? When, when you hear somebody's a follower of Jesus, you kind of start watching what they're doing. You go, well, let, let me see how you act. Indeed, Jesus commanded us to reflect one attribute and to model one action or one behavior that would set us apart from every other person in the world. The thing that sets apart Jesus' people from every other person in the world is here in John 13. Jesus said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, let me stop there, how did Jesus love us? He lived his life, he voluntarily sacrificed his life on a cross, died paying for all of our sins and came back from the dead. So he's, this is a sacrificial love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this loving each other thing, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And then he says it again, just for emphasis, if you love one another. So for me, my renewed Christian approach to loving others and therefore serving others and therefore boldly acting in faith was very much on brand for a professing Christian, for someone who claims they're a follower of Jesus. In fact, whenever we hear, and tell me that we do this, whenever we hear that a famous person or a prominent person, an actor, an actress, a politician, a well-known athlete, maybe somebody we've known before earlier in our life, whenever we hear that that person now identifies him or herself as a Christian, we start looking at him. And we start looking at him for these two things. We look for, okay, are they sincere? In their belief, are they just saying it? Are they just pandering to somebody? Do they want something? Are they sincere or are they kind of making it up? Now, that's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable to look at people who profess to follow Jesus and go, well, show me, proof's in the pudding. I used to say to my kids all the time, when they say, Dad, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that, I used to say, don't tell me, show me. If my kids were here right now, I'd say, don't tell me, and they would answer, show me. If following the Savior who commanded us to love, doesn't cause us to love, and doesn't cause us to live a life that reflects love, then are we actually following him in the first place? Well, my introduction to the notion of living as a true follower of Jesus did not end there. Before too long, I was exposed to this topic, to the topic of giving. Deacons locked the door. Now, kidding, the door is not locked. But don't leave. Don't panic. Now, before you let that nauseous feeling that some of you just got in the pit of your stomach overwhelm you, let me, let me set the tone for what I'm going to talk about today. I know full well that people get uncomfortable when the pastor starts talking about giving. And I 
totally understand. I totally get that. I'm right there with you. I used to be the same way. In fact, however uncomfortable money talks from the pastor make you, I assure you that they once made me exponentially more uncomfortable. See, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up around the church or with the church, you already know this, that this is a thing. Talking about money is a thing that pastors do. I had no idea. I had no such foreknowledge. In the Jewish culture, talking about giving or talking about money in public simply is not done, ever. In fact, there would be nothing more rude than talking about money and giving in public. My people would be more comfortable announcing to the world that they have an embarrassing rash or that they'd had a bad doctor's visit than ever saying anything about money or giving. Indeed, it plays out in real life in order to avoid that uncomfortableness, the uncomfortableness of talking about giving. Synagogues set, a, set an annual membership fee. You've heard this before. Synagogues have, a, have an entrance fee. It's expensive, too. It's a few thousand dollars. And then there's an a la carte fee for anything else you want to do at the synagogue. You want to use the, the hall there for a wedding or a bar mitzvah for something, you pay. You want to have a concert, you pay. You want to have a lecture, you pay. You want to go to the high holidays. The high holidays begin tonight. Rosh Hashanah begins tonight. Rosh means head. Hashanah means of the year. So tonight is the Jewish New Year, beginning of the Jewish New Year. It begins this 10-day period of, of atonement and all that. It ends on Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means to cover. You know the little hat that Jewish people wear around town? The Hebrew word for it is a kippah, which means to cover. So that's coming up. And so those require tickets to go to church or synagogue. Can you remember? Imagine paying, you know, okay, hey, Merry Christmas, that'll be $5,000 if you want to come to church. That's, that's kind of how that works. And because it isn't cheap to operate those religious institutions, those fees have to be high. So the reason I tell you all that is this, because when I came to Jesus, when I prayed, Lord Jesus, I know, I get it, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness, and I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sins, and you rose from the dead, so God, I now turn from my sins, from the way that I was, and I turn to you. God, I give you my heart, I give you my life, I want to trust you and follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. When I did all that, I had no earthly idea that the God to whom I just committed my life had anything at all to do with money. Why would I think that had anything to do with money? Then I started coming to church and becoming part of a church community. And it was there that I heard the pastor talk about giving. And the first time I heard him, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of freaked out. I distinctly remember sitting there in that church and thinking, give money to the church? Well, that's just something we're going to have to agree to disagree about. Hmm? That ain't happening. But over time, I learned stuff. And over time, my heart was changed and my mind was changed. And today, I want to share some of that stuff with you. And I'm going to share it with you, not to guilt you, but because it's important that we all understand that in order to truly live the life of love that our God has created us for, and that our God has called us to, we need to be all in 
in our commitment to our Heavenly Father, who is thoroughly committed to us as his beloved children. As the Apostle Paul reminded us in Romans chapter 8, God didn't spare his own son, but God gave him up for us all. All right, so there are no surprises this morning. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say. Okay, here we go. Here's what we're going to be doing. First, we're going to look at a story of how Jesus addressed the problem of putting one's faith in money. And more importantly, putting one's faith in money above their faith in God. Then we're going to look at two short biblical examples of God blessing sacrificial givers. And finally, we'll learn how giving is the number one practice that reflects our all-in commitment to God. All right, got it? I didn't see many people leave, so this is good. All right. Now, this started way early in the scripture. This started way early in the history of God's people, right out of the box. In order to set the priorities of God's people, God gave us this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, God gave us the first of the Ten Commandments. Here's the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is a really important commandment. How do we know that? Well, so important was this commandment that when Jesus was questioned by the religious leaders who were trying to discredit him, and here's what they said. This is found in Matthew 22, 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus responded by expounding upon that first commandment. He brought up the first commandment that we just read. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have. So by responding that way, Jesus is pointing all the way back to that commandment. And he's also pointing all the way back to the Torah. Remember, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the book of the law written by Moses. And he's pointing back to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As Moses restated the first commandment. Moses said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Now, so important was this commandment that Deuteronomy 6 would eventually become a prayer that the Jewish people have recited two times a day for well over 3,000 years. Now, you've heard of this, I believe. The prayer is referred to as the Shema, and Shema specifically means to hear and then to take action. And it's from this that we can see again that it is and has always been God's desire to be number one in our lives. Now, as followers of Jesus, we know, we all know John 3.16, and if you don't know John 3.16, you'll see it today when you're watching football, usually in the end zone on a cardboard sign. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we also learn that eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. God loves us and has given us eternal life through Jesus, God the Son. And in return, God wants us to love him. And he wants us to love him with everything we have. Now, that's very clear, I think. I think that looking at that scripture, the case is easily proven. But here's the question. If that's so clear, then why does God repeat it so much? Well, hopefully you know the answer to that. If not, you're about to learn, as we've seen in the past. When God repeats something in the Bible, he repeats it because it's important and he wants to emphasize it. 
So why did God have to keep on repeating the fact that he called his people to put him in charge of their lives? Because people don't want to do that. It's hard to do, and it's contrary to our human nature. People naturally want to put their trust in natural things. People naturally want to put their trust in something that isn't God. People are naturally inclined to lean on and to focus on and to put our trust in something that we feel we can better control to take care of us and to make us feel safe and secure and to give us that abundant life that Jesus talks about. And what's the something that we put our faith and trust in? It's money. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically said, don't do that. It won't work. That's a paraphrase, but you can find it. Here, here's how he said it, though, in Matthew chapter 6. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in case that was a little fuzzy, he kept going, you cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said God can't be number one in a person's life. A person can't live this Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 life completely trusting in, completely leaning on, being wholly dependent upon God while also trying to hedge their bets by splitting their trust between two entities, between God and money. It is impossible to live with God as number one and at the same time live with money as number one. So in saying this, was Jesus trying to minimize the importance of money? You think Jesus is saying money isn't important and don't worry about it? Of course not. It was as true in Jesus' day as it is today. Everybody needs money on which to live. We all need it. That's how we get by. That's how we feed our families. That's how we pay our rent or mortgage. And that wasn't Jesus' point. Rather, his point was this. God's people, people who've given their lives to him, to Jesus, who have pledged to follow him and to love him and to follow him in our love and to obey him and to follow him in our obedience for the rest of the days that we have here on earth and also beyond, people who have done that have by definition understood that only God is worthy of our trust, that only God is trustworthy that only God can be trusted to take care of everything, every single thing in our lives. And that everything, of course, includes our wealth. Remember your Venn diagram? Everything, wealth. It's right in the middle. I mean, you can't miss it. And to drive this point home, Jesus shared a story with the disciples. And it is the story of the rich young ruler. Most of us have heard this before, and today we're going to look at this story. It's contained in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but we're going to look at the story from Mark's gospel. Now, in this story, we get a clear illustration of how the love of possessions can serve as a barrier to the life of love to which Jesus has called us. So let's take a look at the story. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 10, but of course I'll put the verses on the screen. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's go through this and kind of figure out what's happening here. The first thing I want you to note is very odd behavior. In that world, eagerly running up to a stranger and then kneeling down in front of them 
was a very unusual thing to do. You're exposing yourself to danger. A sword will take care of you if the stranger isn't a good stranger. It's really weird. You'd never, ever do that. So why did he do it? Well, his opening words give us a clue as to what he was thinking. This guy had a question about himself that he probably felt very confident in asking. Here's what he said. He said, what do I need to do? What must I do that I'm not already doing to inherit eternal life? So he starts off, this man, and he's focused only on himself and on his own actions with no apparent consideration of God. He doesn't come up and say, what does God want me to do to inherit eternal life? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was certain, he was positive that his future was entirely in his own hands. He had control of his future. So Jesus starts off with sort of a riddle. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we find that curious. What the heck is he talking about? The man probably didn't find it curious because the man was a Jew. And he was probably aware that the Hebrew scriptures taught no one is good. Go look up Psalm 14, Psalm 53. No one is good. When you're having a discussion with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, a Jewish person, then they say, well, we're not all sinners. Well, very clearly in the Old Testament, it is clear no one is good. And from that, we can surmise that the man somehow knew or at least suspected that Jesus was going to give him a different answer. He somehow knew Jesus was different from the other teachers. And therefore, maybe Jesus knew a secret. Maybe he knew the secret to eternity. But Jesus' reply turned the question back to the young man. Here's what he said in reply. He said, you know the commandments. Of course, as a Jewish guy, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, knowing where the man was going with his question, Jesus kind of said to him, he goes, come on, man, you already know the law. Tell me, how are you doing with it? How are you doing with your obedience to the Ten Commandments? And right on cue, Jesus knew this was coming. The man, and he's quite impatient, he interrupts Jesus. And I'm, I'm imagining he kind of rolls his eyes, goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know all that. Here's what he says. Teacher, I've done all of that. I've been doing that since I was a little kid. All these things, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Okay, Jesus knew that was coming. Now he's ready to deliver the prescription that the young man needed. So here's what Jesus is about to tell him, how this man can inherit eternal life. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus looked at him. By the way, he didn't look at him and say he was irritated. He didn't sigh. <sighs> Here, oh, you moron. Here's... No, he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. And I'm sure the young man's going, yeah, one thing. Easy, got this. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is the whole point of the encounter. As Jesus knew from the very outset, the guy was just lost. And he thought he was good enough to obey his way into heaven just by following the rules, but he missed the point. He missed the whole point of Jesus' arrival on earth. Jesus arrived on earth to connect the lost people to God so God could bless his beloved image bearers, that's us, with eternal life. So Jesus responded to the guy by essentially saying, I love you, man, and I understand your view of your own obedience, but now let me shine a bright light on the thing that you've missed. 
You love and trust your money a lot more than you love and trust your God. So Jesus says, prove me wrong. Prove it to me. Give the money away so you can't rely on yourself anymore. What do you think? Well, the guy says, oh, thank you so much. That's great. I'll give away all my money and I'm following you forever. No, he doesn't say that. Jesus knew what the guy would say next. He would go, Ugh. right? His face fell. Isn't that a cool expression? His face fell. Ah, right? And the guy went away sad because he had great wealth. Uh, Jesus, uh, that's not going to work. Uh, I rely on that money. Uh, in fact, my money's the thing I most value, so I'm not parting with any of my money. Mic drop, peace out, I'm out of here, smell you later, he's gone. And after the mic drop moment, Jesus looked around. So he's going to give a lesson to his disciples here. And he said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? A more specific translation of this helps us to better understand it. How difficult it will be for those who trust in their wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want you to know this, and don't miss this. Jesus was not in any way saying that wealthy people cannot enter heaven. There are plenty of wealthy believers in both Old and New Testament that entered the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, as we've talked about before, compared to the rest of the world, everyone in the, in the United States of America, including all of us here, whether you feel it or not, we're all wealthy. Jesus was saying nothing Nothing competes more for our heart. Nothing competes more for our pursuit of God than our pursuit of wealth. Mark continued, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So, by the way, I like to point these things out in Scripture because everybody says you come to church and it's supposed to be sad and mopey and serious and all that stuff. No. This is an example of sarcasm and hyperbole that is used in Scripture to make a point. Jesus was very sarcastic. God is very sarcastic. You should enjoy that. Just try and picture without laughing the largest animal that they could think of, the largest animal in their world, trying to fit through the smallest opening they could think of. That's funny. That's a funny picture. Big giant camel, tiny little needle. Crazy, right? Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, nobody. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Okay, that's the story. So now let's take that story and let's apply it to our lives. This parable, which by the way, it's written as an actual happen, but parables can be actual stories as well sometimes. It shows us the huge barrier that existed between the young man and a relationship with God. The man was in love with his wealth. So much so that given a choice, Jesus knew that he would choose his wealth over God. And if we are not mindful, the same thing can happen to us. Because when we really think about it, Nothing competes for the lordship of our lives like our money. Because often our money becomes our idol. It becomes the thing that we worship. And it happens to all of us. 
Christian reformer John Calvin put it this way, every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, from the day we're born, a master craftsman of idols. We all make up, that's what we do, we idolize stuff all the time. We're going to watch football later on today, some of us. And a lot of those guys, a lot of those teams, we've idolized them since we were kids. We do it. It's just what we do. And our trustworthy God has promised us that since everything belongs to him, he's the one responsible for providing us with everything we have. He's the one responsible for providing us with everything we'll ever have, including our wealth. Now, God promised his people that he blessed them when they trusted him enough to give his work to give to his work in reliance upon that trust. So now I want to take a look at two biblical accounts. These are short. But these are biblical pictures of where God rewards the sacrificial giving of his people. So our first example comes to us from the Old Testament, from the book of 1 Kings, written by the prophet Jeremiah in about 860 B.C. First and Second Kings, by the way, if you remember, they give us the history of the kings of Israel and Judah between 960 B.C. and 560 B.C. So here's the first story. It's called The Widow's Joy. It comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 17. In 1 Kings 17, we find the story of how God provided for a widow from the town of Zarephath, which is a Phoenician city, so a Lebanese city northwest of Galilee. So here's what happened. After an extended drought, God sent the prophet Elijah to a widow. And the widow was living in financial dire straits and financial fear. Why? Because it hadn't rained. And without rain, she couldn't grow anything. And because she couldn't grow anything, she couldn't eat. And as she lived in a pagan land, okay, she lived in that Phoenician area in Lebanon, and not in Israel where there was nobody to care for her, she was in big trouble. Well, one day before she sat down to what could have been her last meal, she was almost out of food, the prophet Elijah shows up. And the prophet Elijah says, hey, you got some food for me. He needs some water. He wanted some bread. He said, can you feed me? She's about ready to eat her last meal. And very apologetically, she says to Elijah in verse 12, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive in a jug, olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we might eat it and then die. Okay, maybe she was a little dramatic. Okay, but yeah, okay. Essentially, she said, sorry, Eli. I don't even have enough food to keep myself alive, let alone feed you. But God sent Elijah to bring a reminder of God's promise of provision. So Elijah said this to her. He said, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Elijah told her in essence, listen, When you provide for me, the servant of the Lord, the Lord promises to provide for you. So what happened next? Verse 15, she went away, she did as Elijah had told her, and there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. What happened here? The widow, trusting in the promises of God, gave generously 
to God's servant Elijah from the little she had, and God cared for her better than she ever could have cared for herself. Once she trusted her life to God's promises, God, whom she previously knew only from a distance, became her divine provider, became an in-person God, became a part of her life God. Once she trusted in God sacrificially, she saw that he cared for her personally, individually. A believer in serious financial straits sacrificially gave a portion of the little she had to God's servant, and God promised to provide for her as she did so. She believed and gave, and she saw that God was true to his word. That's our Old Testament example. God blesses that kind of giving. Now, in the New Testament, we learn about the widow. The story is often referred to as the widow's mite. M-I-T-E, not M-I-G-H-T. That's a whole different thing, you know, like Mighty Mouse or something. But God tells a similar story of sacrificial giving of another widow. So here's the story from the New Testament. It comes from Mark chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. But many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, when Jesus says, Truly I tell you, he's telling the truth, right? This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, right? By percentage, she gave everything she had. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all that she had to live on. So here we see Jesus and his disciples. They're at the temple in Jerusalem. They're watching the offering box. They're watching people give offerings for the temple treasury. And Jesus notices this widow. And he notices this widow has a heart that was completely committed to, to sacrificial giving. This widow was worshiping by giving. Though the woman only gave two small bronze coins, two, two cents. By the way, the expression, for what it's worth, for my two cents worth, that's, that's where that comes from, right? Her small gift was meaningful because to her it was sacrificial. It was all the money she had. She had every reason not to give, but she wanted to worship, so she gave. And she gave sacrificially to Jesus. And do you know what? God still looks at it this way. God hasn't changed. God always sees the sacrifice of giving. That's where faith is displayed. And that's where worship and giving happens. And that kind of worship can only happen if God is number one in your life. And if money takes its rightful place in the hierarchy of blessings that God provides his people. Now, this is an awkward topic. I totally understand that. But when we say we're committing everything in our lives to God except our money, aren't we a lot like those Templar knights? who kept our swords up out of the water while I'm not committing that. Except we look more like this. When we withhold our wealth from God's control, aren't we saying, God, I trust you everywhere else, just not here. And I get it. This is a tough thing to hear. And it's really, really tough to do. But if it makes you feel any better, God already knew that. God knows it's tough. Do you know that there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible about handling money? Did you know that? Jesus spoke more about money than about heaven and hell combined. 42% of Jesus' 38 parables dealt with money, almost half. There's five times more 
said in the Bible about money than about prayer. Five times. God knows it is hard to trust him with our money because trusting him with our money costs. Trusting him with your money doesn't just require you to juggle a few things around in your schedule to free up the extra time like serving does, or like praying does, or like Bible reading does. Do you do this? I'm going to get up earlier so I can pray. I'm going to get up earlier so I can read my Bible. Trusting God with your money is harder. It, it requires you to reprioritize very deep things, deeper things in your life, like your comfort or your, or your plans or maybe even your future. I mean, that costs. But I'm here to tell you it's worth it. And I tell you this out of experience. A little over 25 years ago, uh, years ago Beth and I, became percentage givers. We thought if we're really serious about this Jesus thing, and neither of us are raised in the church, so we thought if we're in, we're in, then we need to put our money where our mouth is. We had never given a penny before, but we took a step, and we took a step in faith, and we never stopped, and we never looked back. And when God called us into ministry about 17 years ago, and that calling we realized would require a significant, significant cut in pay, 85%, we still gave, and we continued to give. And true to his promise, God continued to provide for us. And he blessed us beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. I mean, this church and you guys and this community, this is all part of the blessing that God has shown us because of faithfulness. And I can tell you that I'm not the only one with this story. I know countless people who have stepped out in faith and committed to percentage giving and have experienced the same blessing. Now, by the way, hear this. Am I saying that God will give percentage givers a 50% return on every dollar given? That'd be cool if I could say that, but I can't. Of course I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when we consistently sacrificially and joyfully give, we will experience exponential blessings from God. So as we wrap up today, we're almost done. If you want to take your faith to the next level, if you want to know that you're living a life that truly reflects your commitment in God and sets you up to live the abundant life that God promises, I want to encourage everybody to just try something. If you are not already a percentage giver, and if you are, Obviously, you know what I'm talking about. This ministry appreciates you dearly. But if you're not already, I'd like you to consider becoming one. And here's how you do it. It's real simple. Start off by praying about it. Just go to God. Pray about it. God, I'm thinking about being a percentage giver. Let me know. Give me a sign. Show me. Guide me through it. Show me scripture. Get me there. Start off by praying about it. Now next, if you're married have somebody you are responsible to and for, talk it over with them. Please don't do this without talking it over with your spouse. Then I'll have to counsel your marriage, and we don't want to do that. Okay, so after you've prayed about it, after you've talked it over, then go online and set it up. Set yourself up to give a percentage of every paycheck to the work of Hammock Street Church. If the 10%, that's what the word tithe means, it's the traditional biblical minimum, if that scares you, if you think, oh, no way, right, I, I get that, then start off smaller, 3%, 4%, 5%. And then keep on praying over time and raise the percentage as you can. A friend of mine, his name is Steve, he's actually a pastor now up in Palm Beach Gardens, 
He's working his way toward becoming a reverse tither. He wants to live on 10% of his salary and give away 90% of his salary. I'm not going to tell you I'm there. I'm nowhere near there. But boy, what a goal. And what a goal. If you get paid twice a month, as I do, set your giving to correspond with your paycheck. Just, just like they take withdrawal, just like they take withholding. That's what I've done. And it's worked for me very well. I have to tell you something. Giving to the work of God and our church community, that's an act of worship. Every time I see the, the amount come through, I'm like, praise God, I can do that. It's one of the best things I've ever done. And I know it, I know it will be one of the best things you've ever done too. And when you start doing it, you know what you'll discover? You'll learn to trust God through giving. You'll begin to see that you can live confidently and comfortably on what's left over because you will know for certain, you'll see it in your own life, that you trust the God who has given us everything, and you'll trust that he will continue to take care of everything. And before long, your giving will become a joyful way of your saying, thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your blessing. And then, all that giving will bring you connected closer to God, and it'll become an integral part of who you are in Christ. I can't overemphasize how meaningful it is and how much you'll feel God's blessing when you're able to adopt the practice of giving and make it your act of worship. God has given you his word on this. Trust him and watch what he does in and through your life. Amen? Giving sermon over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, for this morning. Thank you for these words. Sometimes words are hard to hear. The teaching that you give us is, is difficult, and it cuts against our human nature, and it cuts against the way we think things should go and we want things to go. But God, we're committed to you, and we know that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we need you. So God, as we go on from here, continue to... Keep this on our hearts and minds and help us to understand and feel just how wonderful it is to put our faith and trust completely in you. God, we thank you for calling us to yourself. We thank you for blessing us as you have. And we thank you for the future we have ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.